Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooltop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Patrice M. Bain, EDS, is an educator, speaker and author. She is a finalist for Illinois Teacher of the Year and a Fulbright Scholar in Russia. She has been featured in national and international presentations, webinars, podcasts, articles and press, including PBS Nova and Scientific American. She spent 15 of her 25-plus year teaching career working with cognitive scientists, turning research into learning strategies. Bain was asked by the US Department of Education to work with cognitive scientists to co-author Organising Instruction and Study to Improve Student Learning. In addition, Patrice co-authored Powerful Teaching, Unleash the Science of Learning, and authored A Parent's Guide to Powerful Teaching. Bain was one of two US teachers on the working task group, Neuromyths vs. Neurotruths, sponsored by Institute of Education Sciences, IES, and National Commission on Educational Research, NCER, and she is on the Educational Advisory Board for the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Welcome, Patrice. How are you? Oh, I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me with you today. Well, thank you for joining us. And in my hand is your fantastic book called Powerful Teaching, A Guide for Parents. And of course, everything that we do at Tooled Up Education is about parental engagement in children's lives and learning. And it's just such a beautifully written book that I wanted to share many of the concepts you discuss within it with our parenting community. Thank you. I would love to do that. So let's talk about something that sounds easy, but it can seem so complex as well. How does learning happen, Patrice? Help us understand for the fact we're non-teachers. How would you explain it? Well, the how does learning happen? Isn't that a great question? And I'd like to start with a quote by Daniel Willingham. And he says, children are more alike than different in terms of how they think and learn. Let me say that one more time, because I think it's really pretty profound. Children are more alike than different in terms of how they think and learn. So whether a child is in the UK or the US or Australia, they are going to learn more alike than different. Whether they go to a top school or not, no matter what language they speak, they learn more alike. So what is that learning? How do we learn? We can break it down into three steps. The first one is encoding, the second storage, and the third retrieval. Encoding, I like to define encoding as getting information into our heads. And when you think about teachers, you know, 
we excel at that. We, we know so many ways of presenting information, getting it into our students' heads. But parents are also experts at encoding. They have done this since the baby was born. When you think about how much a child knows before they ever even enter school for the first time, what they know about beauty, what they know about art, what they know about beliefs and family values, this is all encoding. The second step is storage. And so often we think that once we get it into someone's head, it's there. But where does it go? And does it stick? Too often it doesn't. My co-author of Powerful Teaching, Dr. Pooja Agarwal, has a great quote. And she says, too often we focus on getting information in. What if instead we focused on getting information out? And that gets us to that third step retrieval. We've put the information in. It's stored somewhere, but real learning occurs when we can pull that information out. And Patrice, can you give us a sort of a tangible example of some piece of learning that a child might do where we can understand those concepts in in practice? Oh my goodness. There are so many. For example, whenever, say, you're teaching a child the alphabet, what you do is you teach the child the alphabet, you show the letters, you sound out the letters, you sound out words, you show pictures. But what you have is you have the child retrieve or pull forth that information, maybe teaching a song, a rhyme. And we do these things until finally the child is able to retrieve that information on their own. Can you sing me the alphabet song? And sure enough, it is stored in their memory and they can do that. So that is really what we want. We want to be able to input or encode knowledge, get it in, But most importantly, we want our children to be able to retrieve, to pull forth that information and use it. And Patrice, something very, very important that you've just made reference to is the importance of parents asking the right question. We're not teachers, but by saying, can you tell me the alphabet song? We're encouraging the child to retrieve that knowledge, aren't we? Absolutely. And again, We start doing that when our children are small. And a good reminder for parents is that we shouldn't stop doing that. You know, having our children retrieve is one of the most important things that we as parents can do to support learning in our children. And it can be as easy as, you know, say you have uh, your child is in high school, you know, asking a question such as, why do you think the science experiment turned out that way? They are going back and rethinking, pulling forth memories of that science experiment and 
taking it into critical thinking about why or why not it turned out. So these questions that parents ask are truly, truly important for learning. And of course, there's so much part and parcel of that lovely, positive home learning environment, which we know from the research is instrumental, fundamental to how children perform in school. Absolutely. And of course, I think just in terms of the emphasis on asking great questions in order to retrieve knowledge, that does demand that we spend time with our children around the dinner table, that we pay attention to how powerful we are and opportunities to ask questions like that. You know, I have had so many parents talk to me about this this very idea, incorporating retrieval at home, asking questions. And in the classroom, I would send home questions with the students to parents, you know, this is what we talked about today. And and I've had so many parents tell me that their conversations changed with their children, that parents are able to really start looking at these amazing things their children are learning and the conversations that develop because of that, that rather than having a screen at, you know, the dinner table or in the car, these become wonderful situations where learning happens, where retrieval happens, where deep conversations happen. So Patrice, we've talked about encoding, storage and retrieval in terms of how learning happens in three steps. Let's talk about another fascinating term, metacognition. Why is it an important concept for parents and students to understand? Tell us all about it. Oh, this too is one of my favorites. So metacognition literally means thinking about thinking. But my definition is figuring out what you know versus what you don't know. Because too often, students study really hard for exams. Parents watch their children study hard for exams. And the child feels confident that they go in. But there's a real disconnect. And a child doesn't do well. And that's frustrating for everyone. Why does that happen? It happens often because children aren't really taught the best ways to study. It's very common for children to study what they already know. I know this, I know that, I know this. And they kind of disregard what they don't know. And so they have this false sense of confidence. And then when they go in to take the exam the next day, they don't do well because, of course, those things that they did not study are also on the exam. So to me, metacognition is this wonderful tool of helping students realize what they know and what they don't know before an exam, so they know where to focus their time and energy. It's an incredibly important point, 
at this point in time, when we're recording this, many, many students will be doing some very important exams very, very soon, you know, to go off to college or university or to progress within their school. And parents will be wanting to know what effective revision looks like and how to support their children with that. And one of the things you've just mentioned is it's incredibly important as parents that we encourage our children to think about the bits that they find difficult and struggle with. But getting that information out of a child can be quite difficult. And actually, I love that word difficult because there's actually a term called desirable difficulty. And sometimes as parents, we think, Oh, our child got that right away. They hardly need to study a thing. They've got that. But we know, we know that if learning is too easy, our children don't retain it. And if it's too difficult, they will sometimes simply shut down. We've seen that happen. So there is this very sweet spot called desirable difficulty. And that is when a child has to struggle. You know what it's like when you're trying to remember something and it's like it's on the tip of your tongue. And it's like, oh, you really have to kind of work to bring that forth. Well, the same is true with our students. And when we struggle, we have that desirable difficulty. It means that that memory is strengthened. And so another real important key for education at home between parents and children is is to celebrate a desirable difficulty. When I was in a classroom and one of my students would say, oh, I don't know, I can't remember that. I would get so excited and say, we have a desirable difficulty right now. I bet this is happening to more than one person. Let's celebrate this because we do get to an answer and this struggle is so worth it. So don't get frustrated and children don't get frustrated. Instead, think of this as a way that you are increasing how much you remember. And I think it's important, you just mentioned the word frustration. If we as parents understand that the greatest and most effective learning is happening in the moments where there is that difficulty, it changes our tone, it changes our mood. We're not going to get frustrated and impatient. We're going to sort of help our children scaffold them through the moment. Right. I mean, that's when I would just... Let's celebrate this. We have a struggle, which means great learning is happening right now. It really changes. It changes that frustration level. What would you say, Patrice, to for children who get very anxious about making mistakes? That can be quite challenging to get them into that sort of zone of appreciation for that sort of difficulty. Absolutely. Front and center in my classroom was a sign that said, it's okay to make mistakes. That's the way we learn. And from the time my own children were born, they knew that. They knew that. Too often, children want to avoid mistakes. But learning 
has errors. Learning has mistakes, because if we already knew it, we wouldn't be learning it. The fact that we make mistakes is actually a very good thing, because it helps us identify. Oh, all right. Well, I thought that was the direction that was going, but I need to relook at this. And so it's it's not the end of the world. Instead, it's errors provide roadmaps that okay,、mm, that wasn't quite the right route to take. Let's let's try this one. And so when children understand and parents understand that mistakes are a great way to help us with learning, everybody seems more. Open and and willing to take those chances, and you're making me think, Patrice, that there's great value in sharing kind of visual metaphors with children and young people around this sort of concept, because everybody knows if you climb a tree, you get stronger, your muscles, you know, you're learning new things, you know, you're picking things up, and it's almost like there's a learning muscle that needs to be exercised in order to become stronger mentally. Oh. That is absolutely true. There's a lot of research that talks about the neurons and and how you know the memories go through and and I mean you almost need a diagram to look at this. But the more we recall, the more we retrieve, it strengthens these memories in our long term memory. And the more they are strengthened, the more we add to that. The quicker these memories come forth, so learning is just absolutely fascinating. So I know there's a chapter in your book on metacognition. Yes. So let's talk about the kind of some of the very very lovely kind of practical ideas that you have in there for how to really. I think you have four steps of metacognition and. That's exciting because there's some practical ideas in here that parents could use quite easily. Yes. Well, I had discovered with my own students that that they did study what they already knew, and I knew I had to come up with some method, some something tangible that would help them. So I came up with the four steps of metacognition. And so let's visualize for a moment that you have. Flashcards in front of you, and so what you might want to do is before you answer, when take a look if it's a term or if it's a definition, simply identify if you know it. Put a star if you know it, a question mark if you don't. Go through all your flashcards. If you're younger, you could use a happy face instead of a star, but go through. This is called a judgment of learning. So before you answer anything, you simply, do I know it or not? And this is without any books or notes. And then step two: now go back and answer those that you thought you knew. Now step three is the first time that you open up your book, you open up your notes, and now look up those that you don't know. And then step four. Just that little extra step: verify that what you thought you knew really was correct. Easy four steps. It does not take long, but the beauty of this is, 
by the time a student, and so this would be great for studying for exams because the students have already made that judgment. They already have on their flashcards little question marks. That's where they need to focus their time. I, instead of calling them flashcards, retrieval cards. So how could you do this at home? When your children are finished studying for the day, and it really does not matter what the age, simply have some blank cards available and either write down, you know, a term or a definition and put it away. And then maybe um, a week later, get out the cards from the past week, make your judgment of learning. Do you know it or not? You know, and go through or even wait until you get closer to an exam. But you have an excellent study tool already there for you. I also developed what I called metacognition sheets. And this too is something that your child could do at home rather than on a flashcard. Have a sheet of paper where you simply write down a term, a question, a definition. And every night, have your child write down a couple. What would happen then, they would go through the four steps prior to an exam and know exactly where to study. I have a site. If you go to www.powerfulteaching.org resources, there are templates right there that free you can download for a metacognition sheet, for retrieval cards. So all of these that you can just have, make copies and have them right there for your children to do, you know, maybe spend two minutes, if that, at the end of study. And they would have fantastic study tools to help them with exams. Patrice, do these techniques work for every subject? Yes. And presumably they work just as well with teenagers as younger children. Absolutely. You know, with younger children, I have found depending on how old they are, they like to draw oftentimes. So drawing an answer is another great form of retrieval actually for any age. But for older students, high school students, I know so many high school students and teachers of high school students who advocate for this. And tell us about something else that's very interesting. I love this quotation in your book where you say that who, who could imagine that forgetting can actually help you remember? So tell us about what's called spaced practice. Yes. Well, <laughs> as any parent knows... We can teach our children something, and two weeks later, we can ask the same thing, and we get a look as if they are a deer in headlights, right? It's like they've never heard this before. I think we have all experienced this. Well, there's a reason why this happens. When I talked about retrieval, getting information out. That is so important. But if we don't revisit that retrieval, we have to basically start over every time. And so this spaced practice or spaced retrieval or spacing, you could use it, any of those terms, 
simply means that we know that forgetting is a part of learning and spacing is a way to strengthen those memories, to strengthen that learning. For example, we know through research that as soon as we learn something, we begin to forget it. There's something called the forgetting curve. And within 24 hours, we can maybe remember 80%, maybe. And two days later, it's most likely down to 60 and it just keeps going farther down. So to take advantage, what we want to do is as our children are starting to forget, that's precisely the time to have them retrieve again. Because, and this is spacing, if we teach our children something on Monday, on Wednesday, ask them about it again. A quick question. It could be, gosh, what what was it that we talked about on Monday? Have them do a quick retrieval and talk about it. 30 seconds. That's all it takes. And then probably on Friday, ask another question about it. And then a week later, ask another question. You are going to be so surprised that three weeks later, when you ask your child this very question, you're not going to get the deer in the headlights look. You're going to get an answer. And it's because you have spaced out retrieval. You've revisited, you've had them retrieve at a wonderful rate so that learning is reinforced. It is in their long-term memory. And it might be if your older children are revising for very important exams, they might take a little break, they might walk the dog, they might walk around the garden and they might come back and you might ask them as the parent, tell me the last scientific formula that you were just remembering. So it's just getting into the rhythm and having confidence in giving yourself time between those learning bouts, if you like. Yes, yes. And preferably a day or two is even better. And that's the time, you know, it's so important to talk about learning with our children because it is so easy to get frustrated and give up. But when they realize that making mistakes is a part of learning, that forgetting is a part of learning, that once you forget and you have a desirable difficulty, that strengthens the memory. And Patrice, isn't it very, very exciting to think that if children understand learning a little bit better and if their parents do, every child's potential is, is unlocked, isn't it? It is. Let me tell you a story. Almost every single year, second quarter after first quarter grades came out, I would have students come up to me and say, Mrs. Bain, they are so excited. And they'd say, I have a B or I have an A in your class. And I know. (laughs) I put the grades in. I know that. And I'm excited with them. But then you see their entire demeanor change. And they say, but I never get good grades. I'm not smart. And that was always like a dagger to my heart that a child age 11 could feel that way. How can we have educational systems where where our children start internalizing failure at a young age. I would turn back to these students and I would say, but look at your grades now. 
What is the only difference? Now you're learning how to learn. And you see that that makes all the difference. And especially for my students who struggled, I felt like learning had been this giant party that they had never been invited to. And when we teach our children about learning, it's like giving them this invitation with open arms that learning is this great party and you are a part of it. And you see children soar. And and I think, you know, when we have 11-year-olds internalizing success, think how differently the trajectory of their educational future is. And of course, Patrice, all children need to experience some sort of academic success in order to even begin that trajectory. Yes, and they can. And it's like, we know how to do this. And research backs it up. The strategies are there. We know how to do it. Everyone, teachers, parents, we can all learn these basics and help our children be successful. What do you think are the main inhibitors to children's success? I mean, you've mentioned things like educational systems in particular countries, or but what other things hinder children? Oh my gosh, there are so many that can. I think expectations can really hinder children if there are low expectations or if expectations are so high and the structures are not there for the student to attain. That's right. So those sort of expectations need to be realistic and achievable to a certain degree. Absolutely. But also... We need to guide, we need to guide our children in that learning with the expectations. I always, as a teacher and as a parent, had very, very high expectations, but I knew how to help my children and my students get there. And I think that's a key. I think so often parents, we tend to teach the way we were taught. But we now know so much more that is attainable for us, that, that helps us. This, these encoding storage retrieval helps us as adults. Other things like cognitive overload. As parents, we know what it's like when, oh my goodness, bills are due. I have to get to work. My child has a project. Laundry isn't done. You know, we have so much going on in our heads that we experience cognitive overload. We lose our car keys. We can't remember where we parked the car. Being able to understand even terms like cognitive overload, our working memory, which when we first learn things, it goes into our working memory located kind of in the front of our heads. We can only remember four to seven new things at a time. And our children are like that too. So, so first of all, the example with adults, knowing that, oh my gosh, my life is overflowing. I'm on cognitive overload and I can't handle this. So that's when you have to back up, break it down. What's achievable right now? 
Our children experience cognitive overload. When they're getting ready for exams, when they have assignments, homework in various subjects, maybe hours, it seems, they can experience cognitive overload. And often that leads to them shutting down and and then learning isn't efficient and, and they're there for hours when they needn't be. So help is here for all of us. Just knowing these key terms and how they all relate to learning. And I think your book is so helpful, Patrice, because you know you refer to phrases, for example, that might be said, but I don't have any homework, you know. <laughs> everybody's approach to homework is very interesting. Parents are absolutely exhausted at nighttime. They're making dinner and suddenly you realize you've homework to sort of help with. But the question is, what is the parent's role in homework? What is homework for? And what can we do together in that partnership with the child to make sure it's a pleasant and useful experience? I have a diagram that I came up with in the book and It talks about the three steps of learning. And as teachers and as parents, we encode, we help get information to our children, but only our child can retrieve. We cannot do it for them. Google cannot do it for them. Their friends cannot do it for them. So the key, the ultimate key for us as parents is, and and how much we help them is, can my child retrieve this information? Because that's where the learning happens. And so if parents think, oh, am I doing too much? Well, who's doing the retrieving? Am I not doing enough? Can your child retrieve? And then there are these strategies that can help. Too often, children don't have the guidance. They get overwhelmed. They'll spend way too much time on doing homework and it doesn't have to be that way. Rather than cognitive overload at how much has to be done, break it down. Let's say, okay, here's this subject. We're going to do this. We're going to do it together or you're going to do it depending on the child for five minutes for older kids Here, I'm going to set a timer for 10 minutes. Let's see how much you can do in 10 minutes. And then when that's done, take a little break. And you're going to find that when you break it down, cognitive overload, breaking it down to four to seven things, your child will be able to achieve more. They will be more efficient. Studying will be more effective. Patrice, what about children who are neurodiverse learners? And you've you've got vast sort of teaching experience. Do you have any particular things, tips to pass on in that regard, both for the parent or even fellow educators? Yes, I do. I worked in a public school, which means I had all students of all abilities. And what I found was I had a back pocket full of different strategies. And I knew that every strategy doesn't work for every child. 
but I knew about retrieval cards. I knew about, you know, metacognition sheets, that whether students struggled, whether they had specific difficulties or disabilities, they all learned. One of my favorite activities is called a brain dump. And in a brain dump, I would simply give the students a piece of paper and say, tell me what you know about. This is another fabulous thing to do at home. And for example, I taught world history. And rather than giving a big test, I gave everyone a sheet of paper and said, tell me what you now know about ancient Egypt. And students wrote and wrote fronts, back, fronts, back. But my students who had disabilities did so well on this type of assessment. And I would always show these at parent-teacher conferences. And almost every single time, tears would start coming down parents' cheeks because it was the first time that they had a look into their child's brain about authentic learning that their child, it was in their brain and they could retrieve it. And it's powerful. These work, these strategies work. Another one I did that worked with all students was a mini quiz. And parents could do this at home too. Students could do this. I would simply write down questions about what they learned. And then tomorrow, just grab five and ask, and your students are retrieving. Now, I would have it on paper. Students could either draw an answer or write it, but my struggling students almost always wrote me the sweetest little love notes on here, and it always warmed my heart because it was never about me. It was about the fact that they felt so good about their success, that they didn't quite know what to do with it. So learning, remember, children are more alike than different in terms of how they think and learn. Patrice, we've talked about your book, Powerful Teaching, which I know is specifically written for parents. Tell us a few other books that you've written that educators might be interested in or a particular resources or anything that you've written that you'd really like to highlight? I know you've mentioned your website already, but what other books have you written that we could think about promoting to our school communities? Dr. Pooja Agarwal and I wrote Powerful Teaching, Unleash the Science of Learning. And that is a book primarily for educators. If parents read my parents' guide and would like to do a deeper dive, you know, it's it's very, very accessible. So I would highly recommend that. Dr. Agarwal and I worked together for over 15 years. She was a cognitive scientist working with me in my classroom as we did studies on retrieval and spacing and and metacognition. And, you know, I devised the strategies based upon that. I also have a website, patricebain.com, and I do have some articles and podcasts. I also recommend Dr. Agarwal's site, retrievalpractice.org. That is just filled, filled with wonderful, easy to read, accessible research and tips. 
So, you know, the information is here. It is now. Well, that is a wonderful moment to leave this podcast because we all want to go off and research all those lovely things. (laughs) (laughs) So, Patrice, thank you so much for joining me on the Tooled Up Education podcast. And we are excited to be able to help parents get to grips with what learning is about, the science of learning, and to feel more confident that they have these skills already to be able to help their children thrive academically. So thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, and thanks to you and thanks to all your listeners. All the best. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education www.tooledupeducation.com. Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.